Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. So chances are that your eating out or eating in behavior has changed slightly since before the pandemic, and you're not the only one. Cooks, chefs, and restaurateurs are changing how they think about creating, supplying, and promoting their food creations. So in this chat, we'll look at how the restaurant industry is changing, how it needs to change, with someone who is enabling its evolution, Kristen Barnett. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Excited to be here. Me too. So excited to have you on the show. So we'll start with you introducing yourself to the audience. Sure, sure. So I'm Kristen. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Hungry House. We are the ghost kitchen for culinary creators and really um, jokingly call ourselves the anti-ghost kitchen, but we can get more into that later on. Fundamentally, what we do is we work with chefs who are up and coming and building large online presences and really rethinking the structure of their career, maybe not doing the traditional restaurant path, but rather are looking to create more of an omni-channel food business. We license their recipes, cook their food in our kitchens, and uh, sell it through our online platform where we feature the chef and their story. Um before that, I was the COO of Zool, a ghost kitchen infrastructure and technology platform that was acquired by Kitchen United in 2021. Prior to that, I spent many years at Dig, uh, formerly known as Dig In, running supply chain, menu development, and offsite. And in the, way back before then, I was a uh, management consultant. Um, <laughs> but other than that, um, I live in New York City and Manhattan, um, grew up in Massachusetts, small town with one stoplight. You know, went to uh, Cornell in upstate New York and have found myself a converted city slicker ever since. So <laughs> that's a little bit about me. Yeah, it's quite a diverse um, career path that you've taken as well, because I was doing a little bit of research about you before this, obviously. And, you know, your background or starting point inside of business consulting was really interesting because you went from BCG. And then, you know, started working more so in that restaurant space and then basically like founded your own company. So from from where you started to where you are now, is that a surprise yeah. for you? Or did you kind of always know that you were going to do something a bit different? I always had an interest in food. I just really thought I would have like a long, illustrious career in business, whatever that means, right? When you're 19, you have no idea. <laughs> And then I'd like retire and open a specialty grocery store. Like that was the idea. <laughs> Not much more detail beyond that. I did know I love food. I was that person who always hosted dinner parties for my friends, but I just really thought it was a pastime. Um, I did always, you know, have an eye towards doing things different than my peers, although obviously it was a very like traditional finance and consulting oriented environment and context I found myself in, in my undergrad studies. But, you know, I lived one summer in Cusco working with like a amazing, like women's nonprofit focusing on preserving ancient textile designs. And like, you know, I always found myself doing a million different things to explore all my interests while I was at school. And so now obviously in retrospect, it all makes sense. Like the pieces were there um, but I, I certainly 
didn't couldn't have projected exactly how this would all come to be. <laughs> yeah. And did you when you went to Cornell or before that, did you have an interest in hospitality or even like the hospitality business system structure or did that sort of come later? I didn't at all. I actually didn't even know why Cornell had a hotel school. I was like this makes no sense because I, you know, growing up in this small town, like on a nature reserve, we cooked all our meals from scratch. Like we really didn't go out to eat every now and then we'd go and pick up some Thai takeout. We, when we went on vacation, we weren't staying in hotels. We were often camping or hiking, like an incredibly outdoors oriented family and upbringing. Um, Maybe we stayed in a motel near like a ski lodge, like a ski mountain and something like that. But I, 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 I'm not even making it up. I just didn't even know why there was a hospitality school in general. I, it was like, this doesn't make sense. Why are all these people here to study hotels? Like, I, you know, I've been to them a couple times, but like, what? And so, um, you know, me getting into the hospitality space was more of a byproduct of my interest in food. And obviously, the way we interact with food is through the context of hospitality. Um, but I just... Uh, yeah, now I go back and I lecture at the Cornell Hotel School and they like jokingly call me an honorary hotelie. Um, but it is pretty funny coming from the background of just not really even understanding an institution like that at all. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting too that the food industry is just such a behemoth. I mean, it's so big and it's so vast and you can play so many different roles in it. Um, when you were talking, it, it kind of took me back to when I was in high school and we had uh, like cooking classes. I guess it was like the entry point into like hospitality. Home ec, but- <laughs> <Home laughs> that's it. Yeah. And but I remember them rebranded um and they were like um i think the first step was let's crack some eggs and mix them up in a bowl and i was like am i in school (laughs) like what what are they teaching me to be a housewife i had like no idea and i certainly had no idea how difficult it would like it is for people who are professional cooks or chefs or caterers i mean it's such a challenging industry to be in let alone get into so what how did you kind of throw yourself into that to really understand it and and understand those hardships while i was at the boston consulting group i really was struggling with my health i have chronic lyme disease or i should say had now but i contracted it 10 years ago i was really i didn't catch it immediately and so it becomes a chronic condition often cases uh for people who have Lyme disease. And so I was very sick at BCG. And, you know, it's a hard enough schedule for a healthy person with all the travel. And especially when you're more junior, the late nights, crunching numbers, uh, deep in Excel and building decks, all that. I, um, yeah, my health just totally deteriorated. And so this was a few years into having uh, Lyme disease. And I just was desperate for a more holistic and permanent solution after having tried Western medicine, tons of antibiotics for years, just absolutely annihilating my gut health. The side effects were often worse than the sickness. If you take this one antibiotic called like doxycycline, like you can't go out in the sun. You, all your skin turns red. It's just nuts. And so I was like, there has to be a better way. This is crazy. And so I took a medical leave and experimented with dietary change. I actually went, and this is, this points to my level of desperation. I went completely raw vegan 
like raw wow. vegan, like no grains. <laughs> it was, what can you like, eat? I remember shredding like raw sweet potato into a salad being like, this is delicious. Like <laughs> the things you eat are so wild, but like, you know, tons of, um, salads, honestly, and sprouts and carrots and zucchini and whatever, and lots of juices, wheatgrass shots. It was this experimental program that primarily a lot of cancer patients were going to. I mean, it was absolutely surreal. I was 23 and my roommates there were like 74 with stage four lung cancer. And then there was me. And the craziest thing was they were all like, Kristen, are you coming to 7am yoga? And I'd be like, Cynthia, how are you going to 7am yoga? Like I can't, how are you doing this? And so anyways, I actually ended up having this miraculous recovery. And in 20 days, I went from barely being able to walk a block in New York without excruciating pain to being able to walk pain-free, not to mention so many other symptoms clearing up that would have otherwise taken me a year or if not more to heal in a more traditional way. And so for in that moment for myself, I, you know, maybe call it like an early quarter life crisis, but I was like, what am I doing? You know, these are the problems I want to solve. I've always been passionate about food. Why don't I put my brain power towards something I really love? And, and I, I bet that, you know, the success will come from that. Like, I don't know what this path is, but I know that if I care about it, the success will come. And so I started looking for jobs at any company that I admired, you know, in terms of their values around food systems and the quality of the actual product. And that brought me to dig. And that was my first, my first real step, which was quite the shock, you know, talk about really trying to understand the industry. I mean, I was you know, fresh out of, you know, BCG, I'm immersing myself in this restaurant business. And those first few weeks, you do a lot of time in the restaurants. And I'm scooping sweet potatoes in the ground floor of the building where there's Goldman Sachs and Amex. And there was one of these guys from a private equity class I had TA'd for in college comes through the line and he's like, Kristen Barnett, like, <laughs> what can I get you for lunch? And he's like, what's going on? So it was a, it was a really amazing shift to follow my passions. And, um, obviously it was a lot to learn in those early months. And obviously I continue to learn every day, but yeah. It's yeah. Been great. And, and you fell in love with it. You caught the bug caught the as bug. well. Cause then yeah. You you obviously went on to like continue within that field and obviously then started your own business. Just a, uh, I guess a pause to say, I mean, um, really happy to hear that you've recovered. Obviously, what an awful thing to have gone through. And um, what's really inspiring is that you took the best out of that situation and then tried to find a way for it to also help other people. So how are you pulling that into um, Hungry House? And we'll talk a little bit more about Hungry House as well and everything else that you're doing within that. But I know the organization, um, you're very vocal about it being um, exemplary in its values. And I guess, you know, doing things the right way. You talk about sustainability, quality ingredients, transparency. How is that kind of focus on dietary change and making healthier choices and really thinking about your health holistically? How is that come starting to come through? Yeah. So I think that for Hungry House, I created what I hope to be, you know, the platform for 
the future of where I think food brands are going, how we use technology, how we interact with brands through all these different channels, how we interact with influencers. But I wanted to make sure that that foundation upon which all of that sits is still rooted in terms of a quality food product that is going to make our food systems better, that is going to make all of our lives better because you're eating something of quality. I felt like if I could bring the expertise, perspective, and values that were so critical to Dig's own success and really built our own philosophy around food and supply chains, it took us all the way into like owning a farm, you know, like that, it, it really was a whole nother level at at Dig that, that inspired me in terms of, one, the power of scale, and with that power, the purse strings to push your purchasing power to suppliers and products of quality. And then from that, obviously, creating the whole ecosystem distribution method and brand that could connect consumers back into ultimately these incredible results we were driving for farmers across the Northeast. You know, I started to see more and more virtual brands launching the adoption of delivery. And with that, not a lot of attention being paid to the supply chain, where things are coming from, and ultimately the end quality of the food we're putting in our body, which is so important. Like you, you are what you eat. I am passionate about these things. And so if that's the future, I want to imagine it. Um, obviously, still carrying forward, you know, these really core, important core tenets of, of quality that I think is essential in food and consumers care about, but obviously still accommodating and actually supporting and pushing forward all the shiny, new technologically driven changes that we can make in the business that consumers respond to positively as well. And that's definitely, you know, bridging that gap, but also kind of understanding where people are today and where their behavior is headed. Um, it's definitely, you know, I think the smart way to, to do that. Um, what you said before really kind of sparked another thought for me, which was, you, you know, you mentioned the, the way that products are sourced or where they're sourced from and kind of, um, you know, the connection to the farm or even the way products are farmed or the quality of the farm products. Um, and you mentioned at the very start that you're from Massachusetts, and I guess that you had more of a rural upbringing, at least more rural than, you know, Manhattan <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the lifestyle that you have now right. and the lifestyle that you probably see being perpetuated inside of like a very big city where it is all about, you know, like convenience. People are also probably quite um, experimental, but stressed and maybe not eating the best possible food. So, um how how are you seeing that kind of play out in how you approach the whole business model? It's like balancing, I guess, where you started and what you know about how people can live closer to the produce that they they um they are eating or closer to yeah. the the story behind the way that products are made to I guess where you are now in your, you know, big city life. <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound like so glamorous. It's like, you know, the big city life is is totally like an absolute um the big you know, smoke. It's, it's the big just, smoke. It's just a mess. Yeah, it's like absolute insanity here in New York. But um 
No, I mean, I think that regardless of like modern lifestyles in extremely urban environments, the desire to know where your food comes from and the importance of the sourcing is always going to be there. The act of putting food in your body, like regardless of how maybe quick you want it, I mean, it still matters in terms of how you think about the brand and ultimately where you're putting your dollars. The actual sourcing and the stories that can come as a byproduct of working with incredible chefs, farmers, and producers, those can all, um, those are actually all best shared through the best storytellers we have in food, which are chefs. And so for Hungry House, it's less so like the urban consumer, the rural consumer, et cetera. It's actually just having a platform that empowers chefs to continue to do what they always do, which is tell exceptional stories that inspire people around food, the thing that we consume every single day. And, you know, oftentimes I'm saying like, you know, if we all just were eating food to eat food, like, and, and sometimes we do have to do that, right? We'll have a granola bar or whatever, but we'd all be like chugging Soylent and we're not because our preference would be to actually eat something with meaning, much like it is to consume content with meaning, much, much like it is to live in a beautiful house versus in like a, you know, terrible, like <laughs> completely austere house with no paintings on the walls, right? Like where's the color of life? And that comes through the chefs who can tell those stories. And so we do it very digitally, but I think that it is just more of like a human design question of like, what do you want to eat? Where do you want to put your dollars? What are you attracted to when you think about all these decisions you have to make in your day to day? I really like how you're sort of bridging the gap between what food I think means for a lot of people, which is an, a form of expression in many ways, whether you're eating it or whether you're that chef creating it, there is an element of creativity and personalization and a deeper meaning, particularly if it's linked to a particular type of cuisine, linked to your heritage, um, with that kind of more pragmatic utilitarian um, purpose that food does serve for a lot of our meals. So how how much do you encourage the the chefs and the cooks on your platform to like really express themselves and, and get very creative with their their food options? They come to us already like bursting with creativity. I mean that is, there is like no shortage of that. It's incredible. And what we end up really aligning to with the chefs is what is this offering from you going to mean in the context of your broader narrative and story? This isn't going to be your whole story. This is going to be almost like your cafe style, like light offering. It's going to be just a taste of your entire ecosystem as a chef and a culinary identity. And so we really push them though to obviously lean into like if you were to have a restaurant, what would be it? Like what would be the way people experience your food? What would be your signature item? How do we bring that to life in this format that's gonna obviously be executed well and successful and you know, something that we can really sell because of a good price point consumer matchup? Um, you know, all of that is really critical and we answer those questions, you know, obviously holistically with the chef as we onboard them. But it's an incredible exercise in seeing people, you know, put their like heart and soul out into the world, especially these chefs who maybe are only doing very limited pop-ups 
and not necessarily, you know, every day cooking in a restaurant rather now they get that opportunity and, you know, sky's the limit. Obviously we do a lot. We have a very structured recipe development and concept development process, but it still facilitates, you know, their expression of what food means for them. Mm, I love that. And, you know, you mentioned before content, and I know that on the Spoon podcast with Michael Wolf, you were talking about this as well, that, you know, it's always been about content. And I think a lot of restaurants or food platforms and providers, they do think about the, like they start with the food, the food is the product. Whereas you're saying, you know, the whole, the whole thing is the product. The entire service model depends not just on the product that you're serving, but the story that sits behind it, the person and how they created it. Um, and you can really see that when you, when you go on your platform. So how, how are you thinking about then kind of expanding that as you think towards the future of Hungry House and kind of building out, you know, this um, platform of not only food creation, but content creation? Yeah, we see a huge opportunity in terms of the tectonic shifts happening in the food industry more broadly, which is happening everywhere in retail, which is the integration of content and commerce. What I do think is interesting is we're coming out of a time, though, where chefs and culinary creatives, I don't think, have been valued for the content that they produce. And now, finally, we, are, we find ourselves in a moment where I believe over 50% of all content on social media is food-related content. Humans love food. And this content can be incredibly valuable, incredibly popular, and really drive meaningful businesses. There are huge businesses being built on Instagram and TikTok. You know, uh, there's a banana bread company. There are cookie companies. Like, it is, you know, absolutely incredible what this content can actually roll into. And so what we've started to understand is that the ecosystem we're building is a powerful combination because of the fact that we have both creators that are experts in storytelling and creating content. We also have this physical distribution capability that allows them to create a real product. And as a byproduct of that, those two main factors in our kind of ethos as a company is the fact that brands now are approaching us to gain access to our creators and our distribution. Other companies want, you know, unique ideas. They want storytellers to, you know, share more about their product. They want to collaborate and interact with customers in real life to generate real content and IRL impressions of what they're doing as a brand. And we have now created a platform that allows them to do just that because it is both physical and digital. And so when we think about the future, we want to maximize how many creators we can work with. We want to maximize our ability to distribute ideas digitally and physically, whether it is through ready to eat food or other products that we can actually launch in collaboration with these chefs. And more broadly than that, you know, I think this is just next-gen retail, which is omni-channel, it's leveraging social media, and it's connecting back to the consumer with the why of the product existing. And it's not good enough anymore just to have a millennial pastel color scheme and like the rebrand of what a candle should be, you know, like that worked in the 2010s, but it's a different game now.
platform that you have links you know beautifully into where we see a lot of the future headed with content creation and decentralized economies and being able to have this sort of person-to-person selling or many-to-few selling platforms. The content creator uh, kind of movement, though, it's very different to, I think, how a lot of people traditionally have seen chefs um, and not even like the celebrity chefs of the 90s and the 2000s, but sort of this idea that, you know, when you used to go and eat out, it was a, you know, more rare, I guess, experience. You had this um, almost like wall between you and the people that were cooking your food. There was kind of an allure about chefs, whereas now we have programs that are breaking that down, that are showing us like the gritty nature of cooking in the restaurant industry. And we have content creators that are almost like this, you know, a person, they're a persona that you can connect with almost directly. So what does that mean, I guess, for the, the allure that used to sit with, you know, high, like very high quality, unreachable images of these, um, these creators of our food? <laughs> you mean like a traditional French trained, like European white chef who's like <laughs> typically a guy in the back of the kitchen and like, Blah, blah, blah is like a very tough food network judge. You know, like uh, that Mm. whole model is being totally blown out of the water. You know, the fact that Mm. you can now get millions of followers making, you know, cooking videos without ever having gone to culinary school, I think speaks to the future of what the next generations value. And I think that a lot of them no longer um, just blindly accept the institutions and systems that have governed many different industries and most certainly the food industry. A lot of the creators that we work with would never consider going into one of those like abusive, toxic kitchen environments to go and learn from someone that they don't even respect who maybe they believe appropriated cuisines from, you know, their own backgrounds. It's a complete revision of what it means to share food with others and share your story. And so I think the next generation, Gen Z and below, they're going to be changing the game in a big way. We're all seeing that. And the role of being a content creator is to first and foremost, authentically share who you are. That's what is successful on these platforms because then you build a community around that so we're just looking to help more people with unique, differentiated stories that clearly resonate, just become bigger and get more resources and have more support on their journey to being their fully expressed self in the food industry. And a lot of our chefs are, um, we really prioritize working with chefs with diverse backgrounds so that we can highlight voices that in traditional structures may have been overlooked. They're less likely to be mentored, less likely to receive investment. These are just the facts of the business. And so the way that we can disrupt and reimagine the structures by which that have governed success for culinary creatives is just a really exciting prospect of what we can do in our business with our platform. Mm. And creating a, um, you know, strong, attractive business model would be scaring, I think, a lot of these players that are in that traditional 
mode and have been doing the same thing for many years which is a good thing um so speaking of which i know that you you said you jokingly get referred to as having a anti-ghost kitchen (laughs) business i mean that was a that was a huge like spark for me when i first um when i first heard about you is you know, we were seeing all of these signs of um, dark, dark stores and ghost kitchens and all of these models that were sort of disrupting cities in a really negative way and were potentially not putting in place the best possible, um, I guess, you know, business model for that diversity, the sustainability in particular, transparency, quality. So why, firstly, why do you say jokingly anti-ghost kitchen <laughs> and, and what does that mean? Well, I joke about it because like we are ghost kitchen, you know, <laughs> so, and I love this industry, right? Like it's a bunch of absolute renegades who've been reimagining what it means for customers to order, receive and interact with food. You know, this is where I feel like we belong, but what we also sought to do by being positioned in somewhat of an antagonistic way was to call out some of the tensions that exist in this industry that I felt like had been overlooked just because the glam and glitz of these press announcements of X hundred of locations of this ghost kitchen are going to be launched the next day, whatever it was, you know, I felt like no one was really naming a deeper tension with the most important person in this entire value chain, which is the end consumer and what they think about this food and what they think about these concepts. And I believe that consumers, they want to be heard. They want to know where their food is coming from. They typically want transparency in a food business because we are less likely to go to an establishment if it has a B rating from the health department, right? This is not just buying clothes, which can be sourced from anywhere. And you might be less sensitive to the sourcing and supply chain, but I think food is a different, is a different ball game. And so when we launched in that way, it was a tongue in cheek way to call out, I think a, a tension that I had heard from consumers that I had heard from chefs and name it. And what was so interesting was so many people, like the reaction was so positive because they were like, you know, I didn't really know what was giving me the heebie jeebies about the ghost kitchen industry. But when you kind of talked about it, like it clicked in that, you know, this business doesn't totally match up to how the hospitality business has, you know, really created their own values in the past. And so it was a conversation starter. And part of that also brought out a lot of partners who wanted to align themselves with us. And so it was a great way to distinguish our business model, our values, our brand as being really the first direct to consumer ghost kitchen brand, and then find those that are part of our tribe and making this, you know, vision come to life. Yeah. And it, it sets you apart from being, I guess, just, uh, you know, another company getting on a, what seems like a fad to really thinking about how you build a long-term sustainable business model, sustainable and sustainable business model. Um, and there certainly are a lot of fads out there. So Kristen and I actually met um, at CES in person when we were um, on a, a panel together. And afterwards we were sort of joking that it's very overwhelming trying to look at every everything that everyone is launching at CES through the like 
five holes or whatever it was. I think I managed to walk through like 10% of it. Um, it's cra- it's crazy. So like thinking about all of that and all of that, I guess, food technology and the evolution in the restaurant industry and just tech in general and what's happening with how people eat and how people behave and connect. What's um, what's one thing that's overwhelming for you and, and maybe what's something that's that gives you hope? Um, you know, I think that what I continue to like be flabbergasted a little bit about is like, you know, uh, what I would say is like overinvestment and overengineered solutions when things can really just be so simple. I think we've all learned a lot watching the journey of wonder evolve from food trucks into now what appears to be a brick and mortar strategy. And so watching companies evolve their own business models, simplifying, trying to find efficiencies has been interesting. And even thinking through the investments in all the robotics companies and really understanding whether those are going to bear fruit in terms of actually driving efficiencies. I think there was a report I saw of, you know, a robot that's supposed to like deliver food on the sidewalk and it actually takes longer and is more expensive to have this thing roll around than like a traditional delivery and even just getting it yourself. Like it's, you know, it's, it's, everyone's trying to figure this out. And I do think some of the tension in this industry is that there are a lot of, you know, expats from the technology sector who come into the food industry and say, it's so broken. Like, let me fix it. I'm going to have the best solution but in reality, you and I both know like how deep you need to be integrated into the actual business model to understand which pain points are worth solving and can be solved by technology and which ones are not worth solving because it's not going to be more efficient. And that is a very nuanced perspective that I think takes a long time to develop. And also just understanding the limitations of this business model, slow margin, how many cuts of the pie can you take? And so solutions that aren't real solutions are just frankly not going to cut it. What gives me hope though, (laughs) is I'm so excited about investment and attention being paid to the regenerative ag movement and really thinking through how solutions need to obviously innovate from a consumer-based mindset but also can drive back into the overall health and longevity of the food systems that power this whole industry. So that gives me a lot of hope and excitement um, in terms of what are things to come as, you know, we start to see great consumer-oriented, delicious, easy-to-use products come to market, but also with this deep infrastructure of actually being very thoughtful around how that product is made and, you know, brought to life. Mm. Yeah. And smarter. And to your point, really thinking about which pain points are, you know, ones where we should be investing in versus just creating things that don't, don't make a difference inside of a system or are actually just completely impractical. So um, I love yeah. how pragmatic you are, but also like, obviously you have like a lot of energy and passion for what could be. So like balancing the pragmatism with um with that kind of inspirational idea generation that you obviously have so i think it's incredible um so kristen one last question for you then um and it's you know very obvious that you're like constantly looking and exploring and and seeing what's happening and kind of thinking about how you can bring that in and very open to change um which is incredible so what is one thing that you like to do to 
get that kind of broader outside perspective and, and bring that into what you do? The number one thing that, and it, maybe it's a little too on the nose, but hey, I am who I am. But um, I, I really <laughs> just love going to pop-ups in the city, anywhere mm. I am. I love going to a food pop-up from a chef. The way that they market it beforehand, the way that they use technology or don't, the way that customers will contort themselves to gaining access to whatever it is, you know, is it pre-order? Is it DMs? Is it put into a spreadsheet? Is it, you know, out of a hotel? Is it out of a bar? Like the, the, the ways in which you can, like customers can access food and the ways in which this, the incredible culinary creatives of the city innovate to get their food to people, it always yields some new inspiring thing for me to think about, whether it is cuisine type, whether it is the people that are showing up and understanding what communities are plugged into this, or it's actually like how the whole thing operationally came together. And so stepping outside of my business um, to go out and be in the world. I mean, this is why I think us being in New York City has been so essential to the creation of the company and our own creative energy driving it is because of that constant um, inspiration that's all around us. So that's where I go. Brilliant. I do. I do definitely miss New York City for that and the bakeries, but I'll have to, I'll have to come and come and visit you one day. We can go to yes. a pop-up. <laughs> yes. Sounds like a plan. I'll see you there. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, Kristen, sure. um, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so exciting what you're doing and just how you're thinking about the industry. And I can't wait to see what you do next. So thank you so much for Thanks coming so on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share the show, and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside. <laughs>